Hey guys, we're going to take a quick break to get a word from our sponsor. Sonos speakers, let me tell you something. I got these bad boys, hooked them up. I haven't got to play video games much because I've been doing this thing for four months. I haven't been home much at all. But when I did hook it up, I played Mario Kart a little bit. You know, that I forget the name of the map, but it's like, you know, Bowser and he's and there's a volcano. I think it's Bowser's volcano, literally. Anyway, the vo- volcano sounds freaking incredible. It sounds incredible. Everything sounds better on Playbase. Movies, sports, TV shows, gaming. Playbase adds dynamic pulse pounding sound to whatever's playing on your TV. Your pulse will pound and streams your favorite music when it's off. Truth is, most TVs end up on stands and furniture. Exactly what Playbase was created for. I mean, what are you going to put? When are you going to put the TV on? Gravity is important, guys. It's low-profile design practically disappears beneath your TV, yet fills your entire viewing room with epic home theater audio. Start with a play base, add a sub, add a pair of Play 1s for a full surround sound system. That's what I have. It sounds pretty freaking good. When I want to fall asleep, I put on the rain, the sleep sounds on, on Spotify, and it's soothing. You can even send TV or music sound around your entire home. Just add Sonos smart speakers in other rooms. They'll wirelessly sync to your home theater. And now, for the first time ever, Sonos is offering listeners of Binge Mode 10% off one order, $2,500 or less for any product on Sonos.com. This offer is available for a limited time only and cannot be combined with other discounts or promotions. Just use the promo code BINGE10, capital B-I-N-G-E-1-0, at Sonos.com to receive this exclusive offer. Okay, now back to Binge Mode. Hey, Grandmaster Picel. Can you tell us... The warning about binge mode's adult content? Well, the thing about, the thing about binge mode is uh, binge mode contains <laughs> adult situations. Uh, contains violence and sex. <sighs> Never mind. Here's binge mode. Permit me to share some womanly wisdom with you on this very special day. The more people you love, the weaker you are. Love no one but your children. On that front, a mother has no choice. Hello, and welcome to Binge Mode. I'm Mallory Rubin, deputy editor of TheRinger.com. Woo! Joining me today, now that he's finished pulling a knife on Egret in the night... It's Ringer staff writer and your maester, Jason Concepcion. Did you pull a dagger on me, John Snow. <laughs> Jason, we kept our word. We never <laughs> ran away. We are rewatching all 60 episodes of Game of Thrones, deep diving one at a time. Spoiler warning for all of you, as usual, we're going to go deep on details from the show and from the books from this season and beyond. So take caution. Let's not wait. Let's not let any stones get all swollen and bruised. <laughs> Let's get to it. Let's break down season two, episode seven, A Man Without Honor. Jason, we want to let everyone know what it means to choose the wrong side. That's right. But before we can do that, we need to remind everyone what's actually at stake. So let's refresh ourselves. Let's take a quick trip down our very own King's Road, offer up a brief rundown of what actually happened in this episode. You go first. Up in Winterfell, where Theon awakens after having his stones drained to find (laughs) Bran and Rickon have disappeared. He sets his men to hunting them with hounds and eventually loses the scent at a farmstead. Uh, Later, he passes off the burned bodies of the 
farmer's sons as Bran and Rickon. Just one of many moments Theon's going to share with the hounds, you know? <laughs> North of the Wall, meanwhile, John awakens to find his hand on Egret's tit and his uh, bone pressed against her buttocks. That's a wildling term. We've all been there. We've all been there. <laughs> she teases him mercilessly about his complete inexperience and embarrassment about sex. And she also is a little savvy here and makes a pitch for him to join the wildlings. She also crucially issues her first trademark, you know nothing, Jon Snow, and then eventually leads Jon into a trap, proving that he, in fact, knows nothing. The poison dart assassination of Armory Lorch has shaken Tywin, and he's set Gregor to torturing the prisoners to find out who did it and who has any information on it. He educates Arya on the concept of legacy, one of his famous, his most favorite topics, uh, while she strongly considers sinking a dagger into his neck when he turns around. Uh... They then bond over grammar. In King's Landing, big day. Hey. Big day in a lady's life. Sansa's moonblood has arrived. You'll be a woman soon. <laughs> oh, Shay really does try to help. She tries to help Sansa hide the evidence because Sansa is justifiably terrified. She knows that this means she is now fit to bear children for the king who... And- is a monster. What could be more romantic? <laughs> Cersei actually offers Sansa some uncommonly candid advice yeah. in discussing this and what this means. She counsels her on womanhood and motherhood and letting love into your life or not letting love into your life. And then also in King's Landing, Tyrion planning for battle. He, he learns that Stannis is on the way. 200 ships in his fleet. Tyrion and Cersei are discussing... The other big problem, in addition to the army arriving, Joffrey. Joffrey is a problem. It's time to talk about it. And they actually share really one of their only touching moments after Cersei kind of breaks down about what a incestuously bred, rotten monster her son is. Yeah, well, I was only the previous episode when she was promising to uh, rip away everything he held dear to him. So this is nice. Over in Karth, Piat Pri is telling Danny that. Guess what? I got your dragons. They're in the house of the undying. He and Jaro Joan Daxos. Lovely pronunciation. Thank you. Yeah. Reveal uh, that they're in this together. They've struck a bargain. Uh, the deal is you give me the dragons, Zaro gets the right to rule Karth. Piat Pri then kills all the members of the 13 and pieces out. Yeah. Baller move. In the Westerlands. Rob is winning maybe too much, too many prisoners, not enough pens for them. And due to this, this overcrowding, you know, overcrowding in prisons is a real problem, people. Jamie ends up sharing a cage with his cousin, Alton Lannister. They trade stories, doing a yes. little, little beautiful bonding. Do you remember when I squired for you, Jamie? It's, it's really, it's just lovely <laughs> nostalgia. And then Jamie caves his head in. Alton, like everybody else, is a pawn in Jamie's game. Uh, Lord Karstark is not happy with Jamie because part of Jamie's plan also involved killing one of Lord Karstark's sons. Karstark wants to execute Jamie, but with Rob at the crag, Cat intervenes. And guys, if there is one truth we know at this point, two almost two seasons into this story, it's that Cat intervening not is never a good thing. Too many prisoners. Jason, much like Tywin, we wouldn't be in our position if we'd lost a war. That's right. We've been battling in this podcast studio protecting our binge mode name. And 
That gets us to this episode's big idea, so let's cut to the core of it, stick it with the pointy end. The defining theme of this episode is survival. can't play the game if you're dead. You can't play it if you're well, ruined. That asterisk on that one. Indeed. Let's keep that, Indeed. Keep that for table now. for now. For now. For now, you can't play the game <laughs> if you're dead. Every decision that people make is motivated by the impulse to shield, to protect, to keep a reputation or an agenda or your bodily person yeah. intact. And let's stick with one of our defining themes of season two. Let's start with Theon. What a great dude. Um... <laughs> You know, he's on the hunt. Let's take a moment to notice the irony of Theon hunting his prey with hounds. Uh, Bran, Rickon, Ocean, and Osha, and Hodor are on the run, uh, using the wolves as a clever scent trap mm-hmm. uh, with Theon in, in close pursuit. And when you're on the run, practical questions quickly surface, such as, what are we going to eat? Uh, what are Where we going to eat, guys? Man? Um, you know, they need to. They need to survive the the hunt. Theon needs to survive losing his prize hostages. He also needs to survive being in a hostile land surrounded by hundreds of thousands of Northerners who are going to really want to hurt him very soon. Though notably, he he speaks like he's already survived a lot. I was a little boy when I was turned away from my home and brought here. I kept my word. I never ran away. First of all, Theon, you got it. Let's not act like you didn't have it really, really good. Yeah, man. Raised in fine furs, you know, the the brothel of Winterfell open to you night and day. I never really <laughs> sympathize with... You got to learn archery. It's like, come on. I know. Dude, I, I never really about? find myself sympathizing with Sir Alistair Thorne, but this is one of those moments where we are all Thorne and Theon yeah. is John in that moment. Where what, were you cold with your yeah. servants building your fires for you? It's, it's notable how... How uh, Theon's knowledge of the world is so surface level. Uh, why isn't he terrified that he has 20 men of questionable loyalty, by the way, and he is deep, deep, deep in enemy territory? He says, Ned Stark always said that 500 men could hold Winterfell against 5,000. Uh, and Yara, his sister at Deepwood, is at Deepwood Mod, is much, much closer than Rob. He doesn't realize, of course, that that Ramsay, the bastard of Bolton, is on his way. He also doesn't realize that um, 20 men isn't enough to hold a castle, guy. 500 <laughs> against 5,000? So, you know, like, do the math on this. Uh, he's motivated, as always, of what people think of him. I mean, that's his primary motivation. That will be torn away from him quite soon. But he says to Lewin, you know, I'm, I'm looking at spending the rest of my life being treated like a fool and a eunuch by my own people. Ask yourself, is there anything I wouldn't do to stop that from happening? Uh, and then later, it's better be to be cruel than weak. Uh, <laughs> not the, the problem with that is when you when you act to stave off the appearance of weakness, you look weak um, and Yara will. Will will note that to him quite strongly uh, when he raises the boys, uh, the flambéed farmers' boys. At the end, he says, "If anyone questions if your new lord means what he says, here is the answer to your question." And then he has the boys raised up, and he gives that kind of sad, almost pathetic, "What have I, what have I done?" Look, what a coward! Yeah, what a shameful coward! Uh, other people are trying to survive as well. And some of the things that they're trying to survive are a little more tangible. The elements. A nice pair of turnips, you know? Oh so we God. got John. We got John. We got Egret. 
they're just, you know, having a little sleepover. Yeah. Just a little glacier. And sure. you need warmth. You need warmth. It's and important John, for survival. It's, it's exactly. It's, I've heard this that. is Many people say that. It's essential. The body, it creates heat. Give in, John. Give in. John wakes up in an unfamiliar position. And not just because he's not in a feather bed with a fire. It's because he's got his, he's got his hand on, uh, on Egret's bosom. Ooh. And uh, he is... He's really trying to survive, let's just say it, an, an epic case of blue balls. And, and blue also stones? blue stones, blue stones. <laughs> also peer pressure because Egret is merciless. And she I is. would like you, the master <laughs> of sure, voice work, to just, <laughs> just, just run through some of the highlights here. These are across, these are across scenes in this episode, but they right. all are of a piece. Yes. Did you put a knife on me in the night? <laughs> the knife, by the way, here is a, uh, is a metaphor for... Uh, John's Valerian steel trouser dagger. <laughs> so instead of getting naked with a girl, you prefer to raid our lands. It's a good point. Really good point. It's a strong point. Good Although, perspective. you know, Molestown exists. John will uh, hopefully, uh, you know, utilize their services at some point. Uh, and I thought we were done, but then he said, turn back around. <laughs> She's great. Turn back around when she does it. When she does him to turn back around. Poor John, this guy. Uh, <laughs> this is obviously high comedy, and we need high comedy yeah. in a story like this because there's a lot of dark shit. But even here, the the sexy talk turns philosophical in a yeah. hurry because Egret is smart and she's observant and she can see a way here to position mocking John for his virginity into actually she's nagging him. I think you could technically she's nagging him. She is nagging him. She's nagging him. And she's also making an appeal though. She sees yeah. an opening, right? You think you're better than me, Crow. I'm a free woman. Fair observation on John's part. You're a free woman. If you're a prisoner, you're not a free woman. That's what prisoner means. And she says, and you think you're free. You swore some stupid oath and now you can never touch a girl. Like, what is freedom? That's an interesting idea. Like, what actually, what what circumstances in your life make it worth even trying to survive? And she piles on here when she says, we chose Mance Raider to lead us. He was a crow just like you, but he wanted to be free. You could be free too. You don't need to live your whole life taking commands from old men. Is John going to be able to survive that kind of temptation, right? This at this point in the story is a key question that's emerging. Like, that's pretty tempting. Who wouldn't want to be free? Who wouldn't want to lie with the girl in the night? These stones are heavy. They are indeed. Jamie <laughs> Jamie is... Uh, Jamie has uh, is good at draining his stones. Uh, <laughs> speaking of Jamie Lannister, you know, interesting thing about Jamie is that um, I think you'd argue that He's got a different take on survival, which is he maybe wouldn't mind dying in a way that is honorable right. or is at least brave. Um, and this episode, we really see that Jamie will do anything to survive. I think it's kind of shocking. You know, Jamie has already broken one of the great taboos of, of the land, which is kingslaying. Um, so why not add kinslaying? Right. He's trapped in the, in the cage with his cousin Alton, who tells him a wonderful story about squiring. It's really lovely stuff. It really is. And Alton, you know, Alton, he says to Alton, it's a good thing I am who I am. I would have been useless in anything else. Uh, for Jamie, surviving and thriving is very much wrapped up in his own picture of himself. Um, and we'll, you know, later we'll see that a lot of his self-worth comes from his ability to take lives, right. to be 
uh, talked about as one of the greatest killers in the entire land. He's caught after a very, very short-lived escape. He makes the dawn. It's kind of like daytime. Lord Karstark wants his head because uh, Jamie struck down several of his sons. And Cat, who hates him, is his only protection, threatening Karstark. Uh, Karstark's own survival by saying wise men do not make demands of kings. By the way, if you're the king, don't leave. Yeah, man. Don't leave the camp. You gotta help Talisa find the band-aids. Why are you... You gotta go and help her. You gotta not oversee great. the Neosporin shopping. It's important stuff. You know, even facing uh, imminent death, Jamie has that kind of, uh, that dark humor, that joie de vivre mm-hmm. of the Kingslayer. Come to say goodbye, Lady Stark. He says, I believe it's my last night in this world. Seeing Brienne, he then goes, is that a woman? I have to say, everything he says to her in this, <laughs> these first moments, it's horribly mean, it's right? Hor- it's horrible. But it's very funny. Hilarious in its in its own weird way. Um, Easier to laugh at it now, knowing the, the bright future that those two share together. <clears throat> On a more serious note, uh, he survives real insight into one of the struggles of his life and the things he's had to survive. Kat says, you are no knight. You f- hey, guys, just a quick break to tell you about our sponsor. Binge Mode is brought to you by DirecTV Now. Live stream your favorite channels on virtually any device. Plus, you can subscribe to HBO and start watching Game of Thrones today. And now, back to Binge Mode. Forsaken every vow you've took, including Kinslaying. That very night, he replies, so many vows, they make you swear and swear. Defend the king, obey the king, obey your father, protect the innocent, defend the weak. What if your father despises the king? What if your king massacres the innocent? It's too much. No matter what you do, you're forsaking one vow for the other. And then for good measure, he adds, where did you, where did you find this beast? <laughs> that's, you know, that's, um, that's a very cutting insight into this world. Um, the selective... Uh, decision about which vows to uphold and break is a very important skill in this world. And uh, Jamie fairly feels hard done by a decision he made uh, to save lives. Speaking, we were talking about Jamie. Let's talk about Pops, Tywin. Because Tywin is trying to survive many different things at once. He is he is not just worried about surviving the Wolfsbane dart assassination attempt, though he is quite worried about that. He is worried about surviving the impact of that, right? Not just the actual physical threat of violence yeah. and death, but what the perception of the fact that that could happen, that one of his men could be killed in his camp. That's why Tywin is smart. Means, exactly. And he says, we look like fools and they look like heroes. That's how kings fall. I want them dead. Every one. Now, Gregor says that they're talking about the Brotherhood, the people that they think are, are, are behind this. Of course, they're wrong in this case. Gregor says that killing them isn't the problem. Finding them is. And Tywin really pushes his dude here. Find them. Kill them. Burn the villages. Yep. Quote, let them know what it means to choose the wrong side. He's committed here. We often, you know, earlier in season one, when the villagers came to the throne room and talked to Ned about the the horror that had befallen their home, it was like, well, was that really Tywin or was it the mountain? There's uh, with with uh, with Rhaegar's children. Was that really the mountain? You know, was that really Tywin or was it just the mountain? There are a lot of these moments. And this is actually a moment where we get to see Tywin directly giving these orders for complete carnage because he's he's ultimately willing to do whatever is necessary to come out on top and 
you know, the other thing that we have been learning about him and learn about him some more in this episode is that he's not just he's not just focused on surviving with his life intact. He's really focused primarily on surviving with his legacy intact. You know what legacy is, girl? I love this exchange between them. I really do. And, you know, Arya's sitting there. She's enjoying the the hand-me-down bowl of mutton. Yeah. It's it's steaming and looks delicious. There's a a really like a hearty lump of potato right there in the <laughs> middle that always catches my eye. And Tywin's gazing out the, the the little window and he says, This will be my last war, win or lose. And Arya says, Have you ever lost before? And Tywin says, You think I'd be in my position if I'd lost a war? But he's not just looking back, right? He's yeah. always looking ahead. This is the one I'll be remembered for. The War of Five Kings, Absolutely. they're calling it. My legacy will be determined in the coming months. Do you know what legacy means? It's what you pass down to your children and your children's children. It what's, It's what remains of you when you're gone. Hard, hard echoes here of the speech he gave to Jamie in season one. Become the man you were meant yeah. to be. You're going to die. I'm going to die. We're all going to die. None of that matters. It's about what lives on. It's about the family name. That's for Tywin. That's what needs to survive. Deep in the heart of the Red Keep, Sansa is learning about the masks you have to wear in order to survive a royal marriage, a royal marriage to your family's sworn enemies, a royal marriage to a serial killer in training. Um, After surviving the attack in the streets of King's Landing, that the Hound rescued her from, she tries to thank him, but they kind of end up fighting about uh, the nature of violence and <laughs> several things. Uh, he winds up tying his value and outlook to her future survival. And she, she asks him, why are you always so hateful? Sansa, ever wanting things to be perfect and wonderful again. To be clean. And he says, you know, you'll be glad of the hateful things I do someday when you're queen and I'm all that stands between you and your beloved king. That gives me chills. It's really, you know, the Hound is a cynical fucker and um, willing to do bad things to keep living in this world. Um, but he's right about a lot of things. But ima- you know? it, Totally. And imagine what that feels like to her in that moment when yeah. this man who truly terrifies her and unsettles her. Not necessarily for reasons that are fair or mature, but that's how she feels. Yeah. And he's basically her lifeline. And now she's she's faced with something that is truly terrifying. Her moon blood means that she is a woman. She is ready to bear the king's children. Uh, that is... Those little blonde-haired lion cubs Jesus she used to be so excited about. I mean, who wants to be in the same room as Joffrey to say nothing of to be in an intimate relationship with him. Um, And Cersei and her and Sansa share this very strange moment. You know, Cersei, uh, she really relishes these moments when she can school Sansa on the realities of a royal marriage. Um, And she's so clearly thinking of her own situation with Robert, although clearly uh, a much different and a much less dangerous situation. She says, Joffrey will show you no such devotion. You may never love the king but you will love his children. Um, and that's, by the way, that is Cersei's character in a nutshell. For real. A little more Cersei action in this episode, too. She has some key moments with Tyrion. He's worried about the city's survival. He and Cersei are both worried about Joffrey, but for, for different reasons. Tyrion says he needs to start acting like a king. This war you started is coming to our doorstep, and if the entire city wants Joffrey dead, like, Tyrion doesn't care if Joffrey yeah. survives. He knows what's tied up in Joffrey's survival. Sorry. He's like Tywin in that 
sense. He sees the bigger picture. He sees the board. And, you know, Cersei's never one to back down from a, a spat. She says, I'm not the one giving him whores to abuse. <laughs> Good note. Good note, sis. And then, you know, Tyrion says, if we can't control him. And Cersei says, do you think I haven't tried? He doesn't listen to me. This is one of the rare moments where we see true vulnerability for her. She, what does she prize more than anything else? One, keeping her children safe. Two, being in control. She feels right now like she can't do either of those things. That's a terrible, very debilitating sensation for her. And then Tyrion comes in with just an incredible line. It's hard to put a leash on a dog once you've put a crown on its head. Correct. That is so quotable, by the way. Great stuff. It really is. I see some Photoshop potential there, though. You know, Cersei, it, Cersei is also worried about more than just the battle and the threat of violence. She's worried about surviving fate. She says, you know, she wonders if everything that's happening, all this bad stuff, Joffrey's behavior, the death, the despair, the impending war, is this the price that they have to pay for, she says, if this is the price for what we've done, for our sins. Tyrion, he knows what she's talking about, right? He says, sins, the Targaryens wed brothers and sisters for hundreds of years. Half the Targaryens went mad, didn't they? Right? She's very worried. She's worried about, you flip a coin and you're either mad or you're okay. And Tyrion's trying to talk her off the ledge. He says, you've beaten the odds. You know, Marcella and Tommen are sweet kids. Only Joffrey's Only Joffrey a monster. Is, uh, appears to be uh, exhibiting early symptoms of being mad. Here, here's the thing. Like, we don't hear it yes. directly addressed in this scene. But now, with the full context of six seasons, right. we know that the prophecy... Mag, Mags, good old Mags, Maggie the Frog's prophecy is hanging heavy over Cersei at all times, including in this moment. She is living in perpetual fear of her children being wiped out. Over in Karth, where con man Supreme Zaro is uh, attempting to con Danny out of uh, a marriage, out of dragons, perhaps, he's, he tells her that a man is what others say he is and no more. I mean, this is, that's... Um, that's pure confidence man stuff. He's he's fronting, saying that his reputation can't survive what has been done to her under his protection. Of course, he's he's full of shit. And then there's Jorah. Mm. I know yeah, you. There I is. know you want to take this one. He is trying to calm Danny down, but yeah. also trying to pepper up a little, right? Doing a little dance here, soothe her and motivate her. He says, "You are not your brother. You're Trust not your me, brother. Trust me, Khaleesi. There it is. Trust me." And it's you I should trust, Sir Jorah, only you. I don't need trust any longer. I don't want it and I don't have room for it. And then he says, you are too young to be so. And she, he reaches out. She goes for a little shoulder grab. <laughs> she says, you are too familiar. And he just looks right, just like a beaten dog. The walls of the friend zone are high and strong. <laughs> so sad. He says, forgive me, Khaleesi. No one can survive in this world without help. No yes. one. Let me help you. Please tell me how. She says, find my dragon. So as usual, Jorah is operating a bit as an audience avatar. He's thinking what we're thinking. Don't be a stubborn idiot. Don't just go marry the guy who's right. promising you riches you haven't seen. Get help from the people you trust. You cannot survive alone. Jorah, though, he's also trying to survive something because he's got these, these past transgressions. He was... Ratting Danny out. That's right. Let's not forget, early on, he was selling secrets to the usurper. And the homegirl, Quaith. In her henna studio. <laughs> says, will you betray her again, Jorah the Andal? 
and he legitimately looks like he's about yeah, he to cry. Like he took a spear lip quiver. To the heart. Will you betray her again? Never. So then she tells Jorah where he can find Danny. He finds her with the 13. She's pleading for her dragon survival. Those, those little guys have to survive too, right. right? And Danny's saying, without me, the dragons will die. That is exactly what the Spice King wants. He says it would be for the best. Your yeah. dragons will bring the world nothing but death and misery, my dear. If I knew where they were, I would not tell you. Jason. Yeah. You're too smart for your own good. Wow, thank you. Has Tywin or anyone else ever told you that? (laughs) Never. We are thankful, though, because the wildlings have entered our lives in full force, and there are a lot of them. So let's assemble the Conclave and head to the Citadel to study up on everything we need to know about the Free Folk. Beyond the Wall, the live the various groups of hardy men and women known as the wildlings, or as they call themselves, the free folk. Wildlings is really a derogatory term uh, used by people south of the wall. Um, Like the inhabitants of the other side of the wall, the people of the north, they are descendants of the first men. Isolated from wider Westeros, wildling societies are largely unchanged from those that existed during the dawn of heroes. They're tribal people, each group with their own particular traditions and look even. Many of them carry weapons of wood and stone or even bone, shields of woven wicker. Um, you know, they wear skulls on their heads, all that kind of stuff. They hold tightly to the old gods and are familiar with giants and the children of the forest. Wargs, uh, a.k.a. people with the ability to control animals, uh, project their consciousness into the into the bodies of animals, see through their eyes, are common enough north of the wall among the wildling people to be totally unremarkable. That's normal shit to them. Um, there are hundreds of independent wildling tribes, including itinerant bands of like five or six people that are too small to even mention, and then larger tribes like the Thens. Some of their customs are just means of dealing with the sparse population and and the really uh, dangerous environment. You know, life is extremely cheap up there. Um, when Yigrit says, I'm a free woman, uh, she means it. Wildly women enjoy a large measure of freedom north of the wall. They they can raid. They take part in fights. Uh, they choose their mates, um, which is not to say that violence against women in a weird kind of like misogyny doesn't exist. Clans frequently raid each other for women, carrying them off, though the women are expected to fight right. against this. <laughs> um but they do that because, you know, there's just not a lot of people up there. Um, if you can't spare a spear if you're going on a raid, you know, the women have to fight just as the men do. Um, you know, it's very dangerous to live up there. Um, and raiding for women is dangerous business. You know, you greet, I'd be willing to bet this is not the first time she's had a sword to her throat right. by a man trying to steal her in the night. Um, so when she realized John doesn't have the metal, uh, probably because of his swollen stones to, to actually <laughs> harm her, um, she enjoys playing with the situation. Uh, the free folk, speaking of John's metal, don't actually, they don't work it. Uh, they get most of their metal and, and helms and stuff from dead, dead Night's Watch rangers or from raiding south of the wall. These raids are actually surprisingly frequent. The the two most common methods used for coming over the for uh, getting past the wall are climbing it straight up, just climbing it with ropes and with climbing spikes, with with axes, or you make a canoe out of seal skin and you sail around Eastwatch. You sail around the the Bay of Seals. 
this happens all the time in kind of low numbers. The umbers deal with this a lot. People coming over, stealing food, stealing weapons, stealing a woodsman's axe. Um, though sometimes uh, there are leaders that arise beyond the wall that manage to uh, put together groups that are that are more threatening to the realm in general. Mm -hmm. History tells us of Gendel and Gorn, who were these co-kings beyond the wall from 3,000 years ago. They tunneled under and managed to uh, gain access to the um, Night's Watch tunnels that are under there. They came up, slew a Stark king in a pitched battle. Those things are rare, though. Before Mance, there was Raymond Redbeard. This is about 80 years before the events of the show. Uh, he came over and was finally defeated at Long Lake by a force of Starks and Umbers. Um, and now we have Mance Raider, who's assembled the largest army ever seen of wildlings. Yes. It's exciting. It's good stuff. I love it. I love the wildlings. They, they're uh, fun. They're just fun. They're just fun people. They're just a good hang. You know, they they know how to live. They're very outdoorsy. Very outdoorsy. They got good camping resourceful. gear. Yeah, extremely resourceful. All right, Jason. Yes. Killing's the sweetest thing there is. I agree. Except for heading to the Sept to bathe in the light of the Seven. So let's share seven of our favorite insights and observations from this episode. You go first. What's number one? Rob hasn't lost a battle yet, but he's already starting to lose the confidence of his men, though he does not realize this. Yeah. He's uh, treating with Roos when Talisa pops into the tent, and he's quickly like, yo, Roos... Uh, if I tie a shirt to the door, that means don't come in the tent. <laughs> uh, later, when when the car starts are in a rage over Jamie, um, and he talks about Rob's absence, he says, hey, he's gone to the crag, but not to negotiate. He brought that foreign bitch with him. Yikes. Uh, Rob needs to be aware of the things being said about him, and he does not realize this because his stones are swollen. Oh, Rob. Oh, Rob. Number two. I'm going to get kind of cheesy for a second. Sure. Here. When Jamie and Alton are trading stories about squiring and Jamie brings up his one moment squiring for Barrison Selmy and he says he was a painter, yeah. a painter who only used red. I couldn't imagine being able to fight like that. Not back then. And to help him do it, to be a part of something that perfect. And then he kind of pauses. It's really beautiful. It's a beautiful description. It's it's a cool insight into Jamie's past life and the things he prioritizes. But then he adds, it's like stepping into a dream you've been dreaming for as long as you can remember and finding out that the dream is more real than your life. And like, I don't want to cry or anything, but like that, isn't that why we yeah. really love the story? That's how we feel about Game of Thrones, right? It feels when we really are deep into this show and deep into these books and deep into theorizing and discussing it, it can feel like a dream that's more real than our lives. And that's why we love it. And it's really cool. And now I'm going to pass it back to you before I lose it. Number three. Uh, Rob is riding to the crag to negotiate a surrender. The ruling family of the crag are the Westerlings. Shout out to Jane Westerling. Yo. Book people. Book wife. Gotta love. Book Talisa. Wifed up. How many show watchers know this? That I don't think uh, they realize it. Talisa's not in the books, guys. Not in the books. It's, it's Jane. It's actually uh, a much more threatening alliance to because the the Westerlings are kind of an important, semi important family of the Westerlings. Number four, when Jorah enters the henna studio that yes. you mentioned earlier, <laughs> what does she say? What does Quaith say to him? 
all who travel too close to the doom must have protection. Yo, grayscale. Sorry, buddy. Foreshadowing. Where does Jorah pick up that little nasty bit of business? Should have been. They're sailing that. through the Stone Men, hiding out in Valeria. Tough. Really tough. All right, number five. Uh, John tells you greet that Ned is his dad, meaning he has the blood of the first men, same as her in his veins. Her response: So why are you fighting us? Yeah. It's a, it's a great question. It really is. All right, number six. Tywin inadvertently gives us a really good reminder here of what Danny actually has working for her. Jason shared with all of you the history of the Curse of Harrenhal with you guys mm. a few episodes back. And Tywin goes into that a little bit here when he's talking to Arya. He says, Haran the Black thought this castle would be his legacy. Greatest fortress ever built. Tallest tower. Strongest walls. The Great Hall had 35 hearts. 35. Can, Can you imagine? imagine? Look at it now. A blasted ruin. Do you know what happened? Of course, sorry, it does. Dragons. Yes, dragons happened. Then he adds, Aegon Targaryen changed the rules. That's why every child alive still knows his name 300 years after his death. Now, Arya goes on to talk about the sisters and, you know, girl power and yeah. her, her, her feminist virtues, which is all really dope and I love it a lot. But the key here really is that statement from Tywin about Aegon and his dragons changing the rules. Danny and her dragons can still change the rules. I have to imagine that this is when the idea of the Red Wedding comes into his mind. Here is one of the, you know, the cultural rules of this land. And he's, why not change them? Why not change them? All right. A man is what others say he is. Your mother was a whore with a fat ass. And folks are saying that our episode seven champions, yes, that's champions, folks, are good at plots and schemes, specifically plots and schemes involving dragon thieving and coups. So each episode, as you guys know, we are honoring the person or persons who played the game and advanced the cause in some tangible or awesome way. This week, we don't want to do it because they really suck, but they yeah. are pulling off a power move here and they need to be rewarded as such with our champion's purse. Zara and Pyatt Prey. Big, big, big move. I mean, really, they they uh, they carried off a coup, stole Danny's dragons, eliminated their political challengers by killing the other members of the 13. Uh, and instead of costing themselves valuable infantry, they gained the most valuable weapons in the world, the nuclear codes, the dragons. Little drug on, little drug on. When the Spice King says, your ambition is an inspiration. I just laugh. <laughs> so that his name is the Spice King. Your ambition is an inspiration, but like all upstarts, you overreach. And Zaro says, an upstart and a charlatan. Empires have been built by less. Those on the margins often come to control the center. Those at the center make room for them willingly or otherwise. Now, ultimately, things will not go super well for, for Zaro. But in this moment when he's talking like that, it's hard not to think. He's shades of Tywin, shades of Varys, shades yeah. of Littlefinger, shades of people basically who understand power dynamics and human relations and it's hard in that moment not to be very afraid of the threat that he poses. You know, when Piat Pri says, a mother should be with her children, where will you run to? Your dragons wait for you in the house of the undying. Come see them. I think this is Piat Pri. Uh, he is, that's a tell. And the tell here is that the dragons really do need her. Right. For, there's something about that relationship that is extremely important. They Maybe they won't survive without her. He's not sure. But he needs her because surely if he didn't need her, he'd just 
Take peace him. out. Right. He just peace out. And also the the fact that he can clone himself and then his his clones, his illusions, his glamours are now not just illusions. They can kill people. Uh, speaks to the strengthening of magic, perhaps, mm-hmm. in the age of the return of the dragons. Yeah, they, that's why he wants the dragons, yeah. right? He wants to feed off their magic. Yeah. He can't, you know, he's enjoying getting high on the shade of the evening constantly. It's constantly but baked. It's just not enough. It's no, not enough. It's more. a gateway drug to he the dragons, more. you know? And, you know, we, we mentioned this already, but it is really astute when Zaro says a man is what others say he is and no more. Again, this is this is kind of a key observation about human nature. So, you know, shouts to Zaro for, for running his game and, and acting like dragons are, are just arm candy and yeah, that right. he's not Good. interested yeah. in them. And then he just wants Dra- Danny. Dragons? What? Oh, just you. What? Just you, Khaleesi. <laughs> dragons? <laughs> Who's talking about dragons? <laughs> Guys. Jon Snow knows nothing, but hopefully we all know a little more after this podcast. We hope that you had as much fun as we did today and that you will join us again next time when we will be discussing Season 2, Episode 8, The Prince of Winterfell. Until then, (laughs) remember, it's nice and wet and warm. Drain those stones, Jon Snow. Don't they get bruised and swollen?